up our Awaken series. We have been doing 30 days of prayer and fasting for this weekend for God to move in the power of his people, in the power of his spirit. And this is what it looks like to be a people that pray without ceasing. And um, it's like breathing. When we truly understand the grace and the mercy of God, the gospel bestowed upon us, given to us, all we want is God himself. And prayer is that natural response to God because we understand that we're not in control of all things. God is actually the one in control of all things. Chris did a great job last week getting us ready for Mission OKC. My family and I, we were on an RV trip out into the middle of nowhere in Texas. And I have one word to describe it. If you want more details, just come next week or the week after. We'll give you details as the sermons come out. And maybe 52 weeks of sermon illustrations come through this one trip. But one word is it was spectacular, all right? So, but this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 12 and we're going to look at prayer that breaks chains. Uh, over the, this week, I personally have seen the Lord break chains in two people that are close to me in their life. Two people who've been praying for a long time in the last couple of weeks and and the chains start to fall off and then they be set free. I can't even describe what this looks like other than to, to experience it. To be in prayer for someone and then all of a sudden in the most of difficult situations, the Lord rescues them out of the miry pit of destruction and sets their feet on the solid rock, which is Christ. You see, when we pray, God moves. It's like the scales falling off the eyes of Saul, the, the demoniac who is controlled and he is set free, the woman who touches the edge of Jesus' clothes and is healed. In these stories, we find the redemption of this great God who wants to rescue his people. Amen? Do we trust that the Lord is good? Do we trust that he wants to break people from the chains of darkness? Do we trust that he wants us to break free from our chains of darkness that we have in our life? I, I want to ask you a question before we read our passage this morning in Acts cha chapter 12. Do you trust in the most difficult and trying times in your life, do you trust in God, and do you go to him in earnest prayer? You see, the early church, that's what they did. They went to the Lord in earnest prayer, and this is what the church does. They live for Christ in the midst of the battle. They pray. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. It is on page 920 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We stand at Northwest in honor of the reading of God's Word because it is the Word of God. It gives life to our soul. It is the truth. God's Word to us. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. 
He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. They went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Let's pray this morning. Ask God to speak to our hearts through his word. Father, we ask Father, as we open up your word and we read the stories from Acts and we read the power of your spirit and what you're doing to move your church, Father, we ask that you would do the same thing again, that you would move your church to pray, that we would have hearts, Father, for the gospel to move forward, for the gospel to go forth, and Father, that you would move your church and your people to pray. And ask the Lord God Almighty to do what he wants to do. Father, we thank you and praise you that we have people of prayer in our church. That consistently get on their hands and knees and on their face. And ask you, Lord, to move mightily in the hearts of your city. And to move mightily in the hearts of your church. To move mightily in the hearts of your your people. We ask this morning that you would move mightily in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm overwhelmed with so many people engaged in the mission of God this weekend. I'm not going to lie. It is scary to step out in faith and then to engage into the battle. Okay? I'm not going to lie. We had about 10 to 12 people in our group. We were going to Mesta Park, which is about two miles away. We don't really have anyone that I know of that's a member of the church that lives in that area. And it's very, very near to us. We had about 10 to 12 people show up in our pre-prayer meeting two weeks ago. We went to the park and we prayed and I thought to myself, well, 10 to 12 people is a good number of people. We can engage a few families or probably won't be a ton of families in the park. 
Well, Saturday morning came yesterday, and or Saturday afternoon, excuse me, came, and we were there, and we show up, and I, I see there's already 15, 20 people there, and I think to myself, wow, we've got a lot of people coming. And then I see a few more added and a few more added. Pretty soon we have 20 to 30 people in the park. There was three families in the playground. And my mind is racing. I mean, how is this going to work? How are we going to get people to engage? I mean, we, we have three families here. So we go over to set up um, in the middle of the park, and those three families see our herd of people coming, and they just run. So we go from three families to no families in the middle of the park. And I'm looking at my team and going, some of these people have never been on the mission field before. I want them to experience the, the, the goodness of God and what, what he's doing and, and engage in the mission of Christ and, and to, to share the gospel with people. And, and my wife kind of sees the panic in my eyes. She says, Rob, we've been praying for 30 days. Do you think God's going to do something here? So I'm, you know, me, I'm just trying to, all right, let's, let's get going. Let's do something. We got to do something, you know, and so I'm, I'm splitting people off and we're going to, to walk around and I'm just, just, just any person I see, any movement I'm seeing, I'm going to them, you know, and I'm like leaving the park and we're walking around and, um, me and Ryan actually left, and we, we took some of our LaCroix with us, and we were going handing them out at people outside, mowing their grass, whatever. And um, I walk back to the park, and uh, I see almost all of our people engaged. I see homeless people. I see families. I see children. I see youth. I see men, women, people having conversations, people praying. And then about 5 o'clock, we're out of popsicles. We're running low on our, on our materials, and we have just a little bit of left to give to Mauricio. And I'm thinking, God sent people in waves, not at once. I felt the same way at the car wash when I pulled up. I was like, there's nobody here. What's going on? And we moved to the front, and then we had one car after another. It was a steady stream. It wasn't this huge, long line out the door. So what God was teaching me, what I've learned from in prayer these last 30 days, is that God wants to send His Spirit to His people to accomplish His purposes. You see, just like the church here that we read in Acts chapter 12 doesn't know what God's going to do when Peter is thrown into the prison. We often don't know how he is going to do it, but when he does it, it's all for his glory, not for ours. You see, God responds to his people who cry out to him asking for God to do what he already wants to do in the life of his church, in the life of his people. This is the prayer that breaks chains. They didn't even know what they were praying for. They didn't even believe that Peter would be set free from his chains. And yet, that's what God did. 
So where, where are we in the book of Acts? The church is on the move. People are being saved. The Spirit of God is empowering the church to proclaim the message boldly. And after having a run-in with the religious Jewish leaders at the time, now there is a run-in with the government, King Herod. We've heard that name before. King Herod, right? His grandfather was King Herod, who tried to kill Jesus as a baby and killed all the male children in the surrounding areas under two. Then you have this Herod in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Herod's uncle, Herod Antipas, actually killed John the Baptist. And finally, at the end of Acts, Herod Agrippa II, which is the son of this Herod in Acts chapter 12, Paul shares his testimony to and asks him flat out, do you believe? And his response is, after his whole family has killed multiple Christians in such a short time, do you persuade me to be a Christian? But this Herod in Acts chapter 12, he's a bad dude. Look at verse 2. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. James is the, in the inner circle of Christ. Remember, he's a disciple of Christ. Peter, James, and John, the brother of John, is this James, not the half-brother of Jesus who writes the, the book of James. But this is the other James. He is martyred. He's one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. And Herod says, I'll take him out. See what happens to this gospel movement. See what happens to this church. And he sees that the Jewish people like it. So he moves to Peter. And what does he do with Peter? In verse 4, And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Peter doesn't just have a, a little, little halfway prison cell here. He's got four squads of soldiers assigned to him. Two that are chained to him. Two outside the cell. Why? Because God has already freed and released Peter from a prison miraculously once. In Acts chapter 5, this is what it says. In Acts chapter 5, 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. It wasn't the maximum security prison. It was just a public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So all the religious leaders see Peter preaching the gospel. Isn't he supposed to be in prison? And now they tell the government, the Roman governor, government at this time, King Herod, hey man, you got to lock these people down. You better lock them down or they'll escape again. So now they chain him to these soldiers. We're not going to let this happen again. And then after the Passover, they're intending to bring him out to the people. Make this a public trial, right? After Herod sees that it's liked by the Jewish people, he's like, well, I might as well 
get some more praise from the mob before I kill Peter. You see, this is an impossible situation. The church knows that Christ died and he rose again. He knows that, that he has called us to be the church. You have, you have, they're thinking in their mind, you've called us to proclaim the name of Christ to the ends of the earth. You want your name to be made known. And now the gospel movement is in jeopardy. We have one of the leaders of the church already executed and another one on the chopping block. What are we going to do? What do we do, church? This is what the church does. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer. This is point number one this morning. Prayer asks God to do what only he can do. Prayer is asking God to do what only he can do. I love that phrase, but earnest prayer for him was made to God. But God steps in. The phrase we see in the Bible over and over again. God stepping in and accomplishing only what he can do. It is the power of God to accomplish the will of God. You see, the church understands that God is the one who determines the outcome. God is the only one that determines that. And, you know, we have this wrestling. We wrestle with this thought all the time. Can I trust the goodness of God? Rob, do you trust that God is going to answer your prayers? Even after spending 30 days in prayer and fasting, Rob, are you going to trust the goodness of God? In Luke 11, the disciples say, Jesus, teach us to pray. And what does Jesus do? He gives the Lord's Prayer, the example for us. But then he gives this parable at the attachment, at the end of the Lord's Prayer. I want to tell you this parable. In the parable, there's a next door neighbor. He comes over at midnight, which we would, we would think to ourselves, midnight, well, they went to bed right at, at, at darkness. So midnight is like during their... Um, the, the realm of their sleep, the RPM of their sleep, or whatever you call it, they're in the middle of their sleep, right? At midnight. Because why? He needs food for his guests. So his neighbor comes over to him and asks him for some loaves of bread. It would be like us going to our next door neighbor at like 3 a.m. and saying, my son came home from college. We, he really needs some frosted flakes. Do you have any milk? Okay, that was what it would be like. Well, we would not like that, and we would not take kindly to that. And in the parable, Jesus mentions the neighbor does not either. Luke eleven seven. this is what the neighbor says. Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. That's probably not a good thing, right? 
But then he says in verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, I'm sure you guys used that word this morning on the way to church this morning, impudence, but it really means persistence or boldness or shamelessness, shameless persistence. Because he asked He will rise and give him what he needs. Now, Jesus is telling the parable about prayer. And then he doubles down on this in talking about this persistent widow. Uh, If you've ever heard of the parable of the persistent widow. But what happens next is even more exciting. I'll I'll use that word, exciting. Verse 9. He says, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For when everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Basically, he's saying, because this neighbor asked, he gets him what he needs. And this is what he says in verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Do you trust that your God is good? I mean, what father among us, their kid asks us for a chicken nugget, right? Hey, can I get a chicken nugget, Dad? And you give him a cobra, right? That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And then he says... If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? That's crazy. He's talking about prayer. He's talking about shamelessly asking God to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish his will. Is he not the good father that wants to do that, church? Do we trust that he is going to give us what we need to accomplish his purposes in our city, in our church, through the ends of the earth? You see, what God desires for people to do is ask. Ask God to do the impossible for his glory. Ask him to do what only he can do. And guess what he says? He gives the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit's purpose? To glorify Christ. And how do you do that? Be on mission. For Christ, you live for the glory of God. So, this is good news for the church. We can do nothing apart from God, but if we ask in earnest prayer, does he not want to work through the life of his people? Guess what? Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom. It is meant to function in the will of God, the furthering of his kingdom. That's why it's a wartime walkie-talkie. When you're engaged in the battle of the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness, you are in prayer. 
when it's used as a domestic intercom, you just want more comforts for the den. Guess what? Self-centered prayer has no room in the kingdom of God. Christ-centered Christians understand the urgency of the world that we live in and the urgency for the gospel to move forward. They understand that the main focus of their life is proclaiming Christ and the good news message of Christ. Let me ask you this. Does God not want your marriage to proclaim the gospel? Yes, he does. Pray for that. Does he not want your church to be on fire for the Lord? Yes, he does. Pray for that. Does he not want you to have a desire to live for him in every area of your life? Yes, he does. Pray for the increase of desire in your heart and your mind. Does he not want your prodigal child to return home? Yes, he does. Pray for that. Get to your war room and go to battle, asking the God who wants to show his might and power in your life and let him break the chains through the power of the Holy Spirit. Gather your friends up. Start a prayer group. Spend some time in prayer in your community group. There's two current prayer groups that we have in the church that I know of. One that meets on 6.30 in the morning in the prayer room. If you don't know where it is, it is behind the chapel back there. 6.30 on Tuesday a.m.s. Some people meet to pray in there. Wednesday nights in the parlor at 6 p.m. They have moms in prayer. I don't think I'm invited to that, but... There is Moms in Prayer at 6 p.m. Those two groups that I know of, go to them. The church prays God moves. It's really that simple. It's really that simple. Let's continue with our story here. Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on the very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. All right, He's, he's sleeping between two soldiers. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about everything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I don't know about you, but I might not be sleeping when I'm about to be executed in between two soldiers. But he is sleeping. He's sleeping so hard, the angel has to come and knock him to wake him up. Bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. A light shone in the cell. He still didn't get it with the light. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. I'm not sure why um, Peter's naked here, but he is. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for that of its own accord. Like at the grocery store, you know, the doors open. God just said, oh, I'm going to open the doors here. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Now, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. 
When they realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. They had their own community group. They were gathering in their home to pray for Peter. Guess what? This is our second point this morning. The prayer in the gathering of believers has power. The prayer in the gathering of believers has power. The chains fall off his hands. God is in the business of breaking people free from their bondage of sin and death and giving them life. This is important to understand. When believers pray, it is about the glory of God. All the more glory to God. This story is no longer about Peter and his craftiness or his ability to speak to Herod. It's about the power of God. And when we pray, we lay all of our eggs in the basket. We are saying, I cannot do it. I need you to do this. And when he does, he receives the glory. This is so important. You see, the beauty of a church that focuses on prayer is that it is not about how we can make all the right decisions or have have all the things that we need or the creativity that we need, but it becomes about God and his power when it is about prayer. The power of God comes from God's people laying their own pride and ego to the side and saying, apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Charles Spurgeon, who preached at the largest church in the world at the time in the 1800s in downtown London, a very unlikely place for the gospel to move. But he was one time visited by an American pastor who came and, and asked him this question, what, Charles, what is the secret to your success at your church? And you have all these people and you, you have thousands upon thousands of people coming to hear the message of the gospel and thousands and thousands of people are coming to be saved. What is the secret to your success. And, and, you know, as Americans, we want this how-to manual, like tell me how to do it so we can, we can reproduce that. I mean, how to be a successful church. And, and the man um, said, I, I want to replicate this, Charles. How do you do that? And Charles said, I, we don't really have a secret formula. Um, but if, if I had one thing to point to of why we're successful, I, I, I would point to this. And after the service started in this great big arena, thousands of people come and they begin singing about Christ. He brings this pastor down the stairs to the basement of the arena into a room where he sees 300 people on their faces crying out to God and asking him to move in that service that day. Spurgeon would go on to say, and this is a quote, the prayer meeting is an institution which ought to be very precious to us and to be cherished very much by us as a church. For to it we owe everything. When our comparatively little chapel was all but empty, was it a not known, a well-known fact that the prayer meeting was always full? And when the church increased and the place was scarce large enough, it was the prayer meeting that did it all. When we went to a, a larger assembly hall, we were a praying people. And when we ended up going to this large arena, what cries and tears went up to heaven for our success. And so it has been ever since. It is, 
in the spirit of prayer that our strength lies. And if we lose this, the locks will be shorn from Samson and the church of God will become weak as water. That's Charles Spurgeon. And it's so true. The power of God and His church is through men and women praying. Jim Simbola says, you can tell how popular the pastor is by how many people show up on Sunday morning, but you can tell how popular Jesus is by how many people show up at the prayer meeting. We need people who will gather and pray. Who will pray for the service, pray for our community groups, pray for our pastors, pray for our city. The family that prays together stays together. The church that prays together stays together and is on mission together. This is what they're doing in chapter 12 where many were gathered together. And what are they doing? They're praying. They're not talking about their next steps. They're not talking about what they need to do, strategy. They're talking about to the Lord. Now look what happens next. We haven't read this part yet. I'm sure you're on the edge of your seat. And when he knocked at the door at the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel, or some translations say it's his ghost. Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. These people are devoting themselves in prayer for Peter. I guess they just don't believe that Peter is at the door, but they don't believe Peter's at the door. Why? Most people would say, well, they're praying for Peter. They don't believe in Peter. Their faith is not strong enough. They're, they don't believe in God enough. But I don't think that's the reason. They say it's his angel or his ghost. Why? Because they believe he's already dead. James has just died. But I think that there's a lot more at stake here, and the church understands this, than just the life of Peter. They're going to make this a public trial. Why? Well, one reason could be to kill the gospel movement altogether. Who better of a person to try to kill that movement than the one who proclaimed Christ at Pentecost? 3,000 people were saved. They're going to try to get him to recant. They're going to try to get him to say that the movement is false. They're going to try to say that Jesus did not resurrect from the dead. The believers understand that the church itself is in the balance. There's much more at stake than just the life of Peter. They're praying for Peter to stand strong in the midst of persecution. 
I think that they're actually praying for Peter to be able to proclaim boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God would be glorified through Peter's death. This is a people not praying for his life, but rather that God's word would go forth. The gospel is proclaimed throughout the earth. You see, when prayer aligns with the purposes of God, it has power. When prayer aligns with the word of God, it has power. When God's people raise up and say, this is what God has promised, and pray the promises of God back to him, it has power. Let's look at the end here. Verse 18, now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter, obviously. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appoint, So they wanted something from Herod. On an appointed day, verse 21, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And they lived happily ever after. Right? Okay. No. I'm sorry. Uh <laughs> I think, in verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Amen? God wants his word to increase and multiply. This is our third point. Prayer gives God the glory. Prayer gives God the glory. The comparison here between Herod and the church should not be glossed over. One man tries to take the glory for himself. They, they call him out as a God, and he receives that, and he's eaten by worms, which is the complete opposite of the church. We as the church pray so that God himself will receive the glory. We don't want to claim any of the credit. But what would happen if God does a work in and through his church and we didn't pray? Let me ask you this. I'm almost done. Stay with me. How could he receive the glory? Well, we have a good pastor. Well, we have nice facilities. Well, we have really good community groups. We're really friendly. We have a good choir. We have a great children's ministry. We have a nice parking lot. No, when God moves in his church, it will be because God's people fall on their face and ask God to move, not because we have these things. It will be because God himself does it. Only God can receive the glory from that. And he is the one who wants the glory. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Eugene Peterson in his book, Answering God, says this, how to pray the Psalms. He points out two kinds of prayer in the Psalms, evening prayer and morning prayer. Evening prayer 
is marked by praying your worries. Psalm 4 is an example of this. David commits to the Lord what he's worried about, the things that are bothering him, the things that make him angry, reminding himself of the promises of God, and he cries out to God for these things. This is evening prayer. Why? So that you can fall asleep and you can rest, knowing that God is in control. You're not. Okay? And what is morning prayer? Morning prayer is Psalm 5, where you ask or you petition God to do what he wants to do for his glory. The last 30 days, we've been practicing morning prayer, where we take the promises of God according to his word, and we pray them back to him for our people, for ourselves to be engaged in the mission of God, to do what God wants us to do according to his glory. That the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came down from heaven, died on the cross for sinners, that he took my place, may be going forth, the good news message may go forth. We're praying that back to him in the morning, that we may be people who are on mission for Christ. And guess what? God moves. We see it here. We see it in Acts 12. We've seen it this weekend. We see it in the life of our church. When God's people pray, God moves. Prayer brings fire. It brings God. May we ask for the Holy Spirit to empower His people, to fill His people, to accomplish His desires and His will. May we be a people of prayer at Northwest Baptist.